the memory of Jason still haunts you. You're not alone. Friday the 13th, part five, a new beginning. Severe trauma at age 12. Brutal self-defense murder of a psychopathic killer. Boy, they've given him every therapy they can think of. It's wonder his mind isn't fried with all the drugs they've given him. Murderous fury that was buried with Jason has been reborn. Pete. And suddenly, terror has become child's play. Friday, the 13th, part five, a new beginning. Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for downloading The Pod and the Pendulum, your horror movie podcast that is uncovering every single horror movie franchise, one episode in one movie at a time. And we are back once again. We have passed the quarter point um, for our actually the one third point now for our Friday the 13th coverage. And we are joined once again by our co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we doing tonight? I am doing so good. I'm so excited to talk about this one. It's, it's a lot of fun. I can tell, man, you were going nuts today on Twitter <laughs> with all the stuff for part five. It's um, So I, you know, this is going to be an interesting show because I have not done my OCD thing where I write like 10 pages of notes beforehand and uh-huh. we are flying by the seat of our boxers tonight. Uh, I revisited this morning uh, and yeah, I, I revisited this morning and I was just like writing down just notes of like stuff mm-hmm. that I wanted to think of. And I, I think I wrote down at least like 12 pages. <laughs> I I revisited it on Sunday morning after we had hosted uh-huh. 14 nine-year-old girls for a sleepover. Oh, and I just needed to see kids butchered in horrific ways after all of them had left. I bet. Yeah, it was a night. It was, it was, ter- nine-year-old girls are terrifying. Um, I think I'll post the video of the piñata ceremony. Um, we had a pinata and it didn't break so i picked it up i'm like okay i'm gonna drop it and when i drop it you guys it's gonna be a free-for-all and thinking like how bad could it be they were uh-huh. injuries man these kids oh, no. going nuts on one another no popping like, out <laughs> oh my god we had to pull my daughter off another girl oh no that's yeah, it was a good time. So we are joined by a very special guest tonight, my um, screenwriter Michael Verratti. Uh, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Excellent. I have awful pronunciation. So, Michael, how are we doing tonight? Uh, I'm very well. I'm very excited to be here with you both uh, and talk about this movie. I'm a big enthusiast of the Friday franchise, but I have a special affinity for Part Five, and when. Um, I saw Jerry looking for people to talk about it. I think I, I very quickly was like, oh, hello, hi, me. And yeah. uh, because I, I just love um, 
an underdog or a redheaded stepchild. And this movie is certainly that for the original run of the Paramount mm-hmm. Friday movies. And uh, I'm just excited that you are uh, letting me talk about it with you. So what is it about part five? Like, in, what is it about Friday the 13th first? And then in particular, what is it about part five that makes you want to draw it to your bosom and just cuddle it like a kitten? Uh, well, Friday the 13th in general just has that kind of uh, 80s nostalgia power. I guess, though, nostalgia maybe isn't exactly the word. It is now, but for those of us who grew up during the time, it was just sort of it. It was the zeitgeist-defining moment. Like You could not think of horror of that era without thinking of movies like Friday or Nightmare on Elm Street because they just so dominated the landscape. And even though in this like world of digital where entertainment is so available to us and in any time of day on all these platforms, the way we engaged with it was different. And I, I, I remember this kind of era where like Jason Voorhees would be a guest on Arsenio Hall and how mm-hmm. outrageous it was. And there's just something that like it goes beyond the movies, but the movies were sort of the core of what what helped kind of define that moment in time. And uh, I think of these movies as kind of setting the standard uh, for a lot that came after. Obviously, when Kevin Williamson sits down to write Scream, there are a lot of tropes that he goes to the Friday movies for. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, anytime campers have sex, people die. That's literally the basis of this franchise. Two counselors have sex and aren't paying atten- attention to Jason. And a murderous, you know, legacy follows. Uh, and the final girls, a more recent movie, is is a love letter to these movies. It, it's such a bedrock for the horror community. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a horror fan of a certain age, I don't know how it's not a bedrock for you. So that's why I like Friday the Thirteenth. I'm just very <laughs> fond of it. Um, and as far as Five goes, there there are things about this. I've said this in. in different interviews before, as well as like on my own podcast frequently. Uh, I'm a big fan of of anything that feels like it's forbidden. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I remember, even though it's not, you know, in, in any way, shape or form, uh, quite as hard a movie as the one we're discussing today. Uh, I remember I watched this USA Up All Night airing of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, and that was like a, a, a pivotal moment for me. Because all of a sudden I'm seeing this movie that was not like the movies they were playing at the multiplex or the movies that they were advertising during primetime. And I became aware of this thing that like, oh, there's this whole other world of otherness. And horror by its like very definition is subversive. So when something actually exists within the horror genre, let alone a major franchise that we all love, that subverts the subversive, that's kind of delicious. Like I get why this movie doesn't work for people, but I kind of love that... It's a Friday the 13th movie in the middle of the franchise that dares to deviate away from Jason in a very peculiar and strange way. Uh, and it's sleazy. It was directed by a, a former porn filmmaker. Uh, everything about it is a little less um, popcorn movie. You know, I, I do love that in part six, which is I will leave to whoever is left to discuss that next. Uh, but uh, six kind of goes back to the 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 big budget blockbuster of it all and i think that this movie is kind of his like dirty cousin and mm-hmm. i'm always i'm always fond of the dirty cousins <laughs> well that that end i've always thought part five just kind of felt like the, the 42nd street friday the 13th you know For like sure. it, like 
it, it always felt to me like it was it was closer to Maniac than it would be like Halloween. And I think that's something that I like really latched onto because if there's any film in the entire series that feels like that Forbidden Fruits, it's a new beginning. As a kid, like when I came across it, it was the only Friday the 13th that I wouldn't watch around my dad because I was just I mean, if you saw what I was watching with that one, you know, I'd be sent to my room. It has it's such a sleazy quality about that. And I think that it, that comes off in like a good way to people like me and like yourself. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think that it probably got unjustly maligned because it was a Friday the 13th movie. We know living, especially now in the era of Twitter, how kind of obstinate fandom can be, right? And I mm -hmm. think that sometimes rather than exploring new territory and taking stories to new places, people seem to just demand more of what they already know, which is sort of limiting in a storytelling way. So it was a bold move for them to make this movie the way they did, because we know from, from studio perspective and market research that like the fans want Jason Voorhees in a hockey mask at camp, lather, rinse, repeat. And mm -hmm. I think that if this movie had not been a Friday the 13th movie, if it had been just an other like woods set slasher, a maybe a Friday the 13th pastiche that wasn't build a Friday the 13th movie, 80s fans might actually look upon it in a different way. But mm -hmm. because it's sort of like they they build it as this and we know how fans can be, uh, it, it is a little more dubious. Well, I, I also, uh, it's, it's a film that kind of like uh, Halloween 4 and 5 to me. I love those movies with a passion and I'm really fond of A New Beginning as well. I've never considered them good sequels to the source material, but like good films on their own. Like you said, if this was a something else, if it was called something else, there would probably have been a better reception. And I think if you could kind of separate the, the, the part fives of Friday the 13th or, you know, I mean, I can't believe I'm defending in a little bit, but like the Jason Goes to Hell entries that are like way out there. If you could find, you know, if you could kind of watch them on their own, they're they're pretty entertaining. It's just, I think... A lot of people, they hold up every sequel to what came before it. And when it does something different, you know, they, a lot of them don't even give it a chance. It's true. It's difficult yeah. to remove the film from the context of what comes before it. And this is also like Friday the 13th Part 5. It looks like the other four movies in terms of the way it's filmed. It looks like three in looks like part three in particular, and we're going to get to the mm -hmm. setting of it overall, but it has that like kind of like low-grade um, filmy look to it overall. The characters are mostly recognizable in terms of who you would expect to see in a movie like this with a little bit more, maybe a little bit more quirk than I think we've been used to be seeing. I think mm -hmm. there are some very memorable characters to be found in this movie. Um, so it's just recognizable enough for fans that it, I can understand where, where maybe it's a little bit off-putting Putting, um, you know, when they come out of the theater thinking they were going to see something and it looks like it. it's like I use a, the burger analogy a lot because I really like food. Um, <laughs> but when mom or grandma would make you a hamburger and throw it in between like two sheets of like Wonder Bread and tell you it was as good as like a Wendy's burger or like an In-N-Out burger. And you're like, it's still good, but it's not <laughs> what I was expecting overall. Um, 
So it's just not what I was like looking for at that point. That's kind of how I look at it. Although over time you start to get look back and you have that nostalgia for like grandma's cooking at that point and you like it mm-hmm. a lot more, you know, 30 years later than you did back then when you were a stubborn little prick and a kid. So well, there's always true. Um, go, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's true, too, about exactly what you say about uh, the idea of expectations via the lens of time and sometimes what we bring to it. And I mentioned nostalgia earlier, and I think that nostalgia is a very interesting beast in the way that uh, so many properties either uh, seek to return to that or mine it, whether Stranger Things trying to evoke our sense of nostalgia or Star Wars just like trying to like main, be Star Wars. But the problem with nostalgia that no one ever talks about is that nostalgia is a, a personal thing. Everybody's nostalgia is connected to the memories of our growing up and everybody's circumstances are different. So how do you actually create something that services that for everybody? You can't. Um, and when we look at what we, our expectations are, Friday Five, I think you're right, is a little trickier because there's four movies that came before it that have sort of set the mold and they're clearly trying to follow in that pattern but deviate. So I could see why where there's like a wide turn. But a lot of times when I talk to like say Nightmare fans, just to have like a comparison, when people say, well, I didn't like Nightmare 2 because Nightmare 2 was not a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, it's kind of a bizarre thing to say because when you think about it, there was only one other Nightmare movie to compare yeah. it to. So. Mm-hmm. And now it, it, now it's kind of come back around. It's got its own history. There's a documentary coming out about it, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. But it's just sort of like, what do we bring to these movies as well? And how does that affect how we view them? I know that's probably like way more philosophical than we were planning on getting. But I'm just fascinated by that level of engagement. Because as horror fans, we all bring that to everything we watch. I do think there is a collective nostalgia, though. I think, you know, and I agree to your point, like, there's a very personal experience with it, but there's a reason why Stranger Things resonates with so many people of a certain age, because there is like some collective feeling overall um, that these kind of films evoke in a person, you know, whether it's a Friday the 13th, whether it's an E.T., whether it's you go back and listen to Princess Purple Rain, um, there's a collective feeling that like a people kind of feel. How you experience that nostalgia is going to be different for each individual, and that's what personalizes it. I liken it to like, I work with students, all of them have anxiety. Every single middle school and high school kid right now, they you could diagnose them with anxiety. That's a collective experience. How they experience that feeling, that's what makes it personal. That's what makes it unique and individual. So that's, you know, I think there is something to be said, like why there's a collective nostalgia, why these things resonate. But like what we're going to individually pull out of these movies is going to be somewhat different for every single person. Well, that, sure. that and uh, I mean, when people say, you know, when they talk about Friday Five and they kind of mention that it's so far off from what Friday 13th is. The first film in the series that you get the Jason that we really know and love is the fourth movie. I mean, that's the first movie in the series where it's full on Jason. Mm -hmm. You know, everything else is kind of like trial and error. Him, you know, the clumsy Jason in two, you know, the the, the annoyed dad Jason in three, you know, like like we keep mentioning, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) he gets his mask halfway and then it goes off. But four is the first time we actually get that Jason. So for fans to like really throw five away so easily saying that, like you only had one movie that really felt like right. Jason. So it's really not 
you know, you're really not missing much. And I, I understand the frustration of not being, you know, not having a lot of Jason. I, I love Jason with a passion. But five, five is like, there's always one movie in every franchise where you know there was so much cocaine on that set. And I love those movies because that is the one where you know that even if it wasn't the best decision, these people were like hopped up out of their mind making like exploitation greatness. And that's what that's what a new beginning always felt like me like to, to me. It's like, man, like you could fill a whole season of, of you know, like narcos with just this movie. Like it is you can almost feel the powder coming off the lens. And I think that it's very much on record that drug use was rampant on the set of this film. I have that bookmarked in here. I'm trying to find that right now as you here we go. Um, Bob uh, D. Simone, who played, I think it was Bob in the movie. I'm trying to think right now, but he's Billy, the, right? Billy. Yes, you're yeah. right. Uh, the male nurse, Billy. So here's a quote from um, here's a quote from Crystal Lake Memories, which is in, if you're a Friday the 13th fan. You, this is a must-have book. Like everybody should own this book. Um, part five was a set that was riddled with cocaine. It was funny. My scene in the car right before I got the axe in my head—that was basically improvised. The script just said oh, wow. Billy pulls up and waits outside. No dialogue or anything. Danny said, "Why don't you go get high in the car and do what you want?" So there I am at three o'clock in the morning, snorting this baby laxative called Mananta, which they used to cut cocaine. And I think I was the only person person on the set not snorting the real thing uh producer steven posey drugs were a presence on the set it was just part of a lifestyle in those days it was flamboyant decadent um everyone almost everyone on the set has some sort of like cocaine story here it's it's weird and it's, it's funny and i'm in no way advocating like you know narcotics use but like it's it's those movies that you know that was going on like it just oozes off of the screen mm. that like growing up i i always loved those movies cuz they're batshit insane and for like for a franchise that had already kind of gotten to that point of being beloved you know to to have a movie like right in the middle where it's just off the rails i mean i've i've always loved halloween 3 as well you know are 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 those kind of entries in each franchise but i mean jason isn't in the film per se but like i feel like in a lot of ways that vibe still is and yes it's, i think it's it's very entertaining absolutely oh and i loved earlier when you said this feels like the 42nd street uh entry of the friday the 13th because it does there's there's a sleaze to it it's just like very grindhousey as you're saying it has this whole sense that um Everything about it was just a wild decision. And I don't know. It works for me. I guess in the decades in the decade of excess, I want to see an excessive movie. And this delivers that. And that's that that's really all I ask. Mm-hmm. So can we take two minutes and set the table a little bit and look at what Friday the 13th Part 5 comes out against? Like, where is horror at midway through the 80s decade? You know, what many fans consider maybe the best decade of horror movies, um, the beloved 1980s. 
1984 Part 4 comes out and makes about $32 million um, on a budget of about 3 or $4 million. So $32 million might not sound like a crazy amount of money, but A, it's 1984 money, and then B, um, it's a return of investment about 10 times what they're actually putting into the movie overall. So even though you're getting the final chapter within the opening weekend of making $11 million, Paramount's like, we want to do another one of these things. Problem is, by this time, slasher movies are pretty much on their way out. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street debuts in 19, uh, November of that year, but that's a much different-looking kind of slasher movie. Um, what you see in 1985 is a lot more classic horror overall and a lot of really fun experimental things. F- Tom Holland's Fright Night comes out, one of the best vampire movies of the decade, right damn in the middle of it. Stuart Gordon with Reanimator with a classic and really nouveau adaption of H.P. Lovecraft stories. George Romero wraps up his original Dead trilogy with Day of the Dead, but that's outdone by The Return of the Living Dead. The Stuff comes out. Silver Bullets comes out. Um, Toby Hooper is back with Life Force, which if someone can explain Life Force to me, please, please do. Well, I do do know, speaking of drug movies, uh, but I do know that uh, Five and Life Force uh, were actually in theaters at the same time. They were mm-hmm. that, that was one of those where uh, it was a parallel run. I think the three like big horror releases that were out at that first quarter of the year were Life Force, Friday the 13th Part 5, and Cat's Eye. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you want to talk about three very tonally different movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, most definitely. I mean, a Cat's Eye is... It's, it's such a good uh, uh, thriller, you know, like it, it plays in those pawns very well. Whereas, you know, Friday Five, like like we've been saying, there's going to be a lot of uh, references to the word cocaine in this episode, I can tell. Yes. Uh, you know, cocaine that one, and sleaze. Yeah. Life Force is, I mean, to, to be honest, Life Force feels like Friday 13th Five as, term, as far as sleaze, but in space. Like, I love that movie equally. Uh, I, I think it was a really interesting time for horror because, yeah, the slasher craze was kind of coming to, uh, I mean, not a complete stop because, I mean, I don't think it ever went away. It's just maybe the quality dipped. Mm-hmm. But I, what I love about Friday Five is that, yeah, the slasher movement was kind of, you know, getting quieter. But what do we get from a Friday 13th movie when that was getting quieter? Like the most over the top over the top slasher around like and everything the critics hated about the four movies prior is amplified to like the you know the most just the craziest amount in in five like you know there isn't nudity there's basically softcore porn i mean it's not only the 42nd street friday the 13th but it's also i think the closest to like a cinemax after dark friday the 13th Mm -hmm. you know like everything the, the kills are over the top, and you could totally tell that this is the first film in the series that really, really, really got the butcher when it, you know, got to the MPAA. I mean, every death, you know, right when it's about to happen, you either get zoom a zoom or, you know, like, it, it just cuts. So, I mean, this is, like, the most extravagant Friday the 13th, I, I think, until maybe Jason goes to hell. <laughs> and I would also even go so far as to argue that this is the last 
air quote, pure slasher of the franchise of the original Paramount run. Because following this, when, you know, Tom McLaughlin does six, it's more of an homage to universal monster movies. Jason mm-hmm. comes back as this sort of like Frank and Jason. We've got the supernatural powers of uh, Laura Park Lincoln's uh, character in, uh, in seven. And then, you know, whatever the boat adventure of eight is. But uh, for that original Paramount run, this is the last one that's like just a pure kids at the woods and there's a killer and i i think that it's kind of cool for that original sort of slasher vision that this is the one that amps all of those elements up before it goes into the kind of next wave supernatural territory that it chooses to go um i don't know and the other thing too that like rarely gets discussed even though this movie was cut heavily it's still one of the goriest. It's still one of the most nudity heavy. And you can see the repercussions of this film on later sequels. I know that uh, when John Carl Beekler did Seven, they took an axe to that print. And like mm-hmm. there are, there's gore that is completely removed from Seven because they were afraid of MPA backlash, which I'm sure began with this film. Well, also, well, like, I mean, this is like what the second uh, lowest uh, turnout as far as box office. So I can understand, you know, the risk that this one took. I can understand maybe frightening, uh, you know, producers on the future films because, I mean, this one didn't make that much money when it came out. Right. It still does well. It does like a little bit over $20 million on a $2 million budget. Mm-hmm. So it does good, but the others have been pulling in closer to $40 million. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at A Nightmare on Elm Street, which is pulling in big money on, on huge returns and it's just getting getting going at this point, um, Paramount is starting to get a little bit of gun shy. But I think you're right, Michael. I do think that this particular entry – closes the book on the typical slasher movie that you had seen from the series and what we're going to see going forward. So we kind of like affectionately call zombie Jason, supernatural Jason going forward. This is the last kind of like human in a mask. And I think you see that at the end of this movie, like Roy is all busted up and he's hurt. Like you see when he gets um, hit by the tractor by Reggie the Reckless um, and he gets up like he is stunned he's like I'm bleeding right now and I think that anyone in the audience at that point that was expecting it to be Jason if they still were should have seen that as a cue that like this is not your typical Friday the 13th right now well that ends I mean uh, on a counterpoint to that like I also feel like maybe the producers forgot that they took that that risk of having a, you know, just Roy as the killer. Because when when the end comes down, and, you know, our listeners know that we kind of jump around with, with, with the mm-hmm. films. But as the, when the ending comes, and Roy, not Jason, not this person that's gotten, like, you know, an axe to the head and, you know, fingers chopped and his eyeball on a machete, none, none of that shit. But when we get Roy, a very human, you know, ambulance driver, he gets hit with a tractor, which would break every rib in his body, right. not killing him. You know, he gets that. He gets stabbed. He gets everything. And I think they almost forgot the fact that, like, they chose to have Roy in the movie because he gets put through some stuff that would kill anyone right away. Mm-hmm. And I was watching it earlier today, kind of like a refresher. And, man, I found myself cracking up so much at this movie more than I ever have because – I love it. Don't get me wrong, but there's so much just ridiculousness to it. And, and there's, I mean, there are definitely some missteps, I think. Uh, I think it's one of the uh, 
uh, most frustrating sequels to me in the sense that I really don't care about any of the characters. Definitely not the main protagonist. The only two characters that I genuinely care about in the movie are Reggie and Demon. Because mm-hmm. that chemistry and there's like just sincerity with those two, especially Shavar Ross as Reggie. I mean, I yeah. think he's up there. He's up there with Ginny or, you know, Tommy or any of the characters, though, that I think are some of the fan favorites. Reggie the Reckless, I think, steals the entire movie. And I, I kind of wish that Reggie and if Demon hadn't died, I wish those two would have gotten their own spinoff. Uh, in a perfect world. Uh, right? But I don't. Yeah. In the 80s, I, I, I don't think they were. You see, the industry still is taking baby steps at casting non-white leads. So I think that. Uh, but how badass would that have been? I think it's interesting too that you said it feels like at times they uh, forget why was supposed to be the reveal of this movie. Because yeah, yeah, I 100% agree with that. Because from a screenwriting or storytelling perspective, this definitely just feels like they were. There are moments where the reveal of Roy. I, I do remember many friends and audience members being like, wait, who's that guy? Because mm-hmm. we, we really only see him at the beginning. And it kind of reminds me of that. Uh, in a way, it's also a giallo entrant, entry into the world of Friday the 13th. Because that's a very Argento move to like make the black-gloved killer be revealed to be like the lady in the phone booth who we walked by once. And you're supposed to like just remember that. It's it's a bonkers move, and I don't know. I kind of respect it for that I, reason. Well, I, I remember as a kid the first time I, I I saw it, and I think I saw five later in the game. I think I had watched most of them prior to that. I think maybe I was like 12, 11, 12, 13 when I saw five. And I remember just wondering what the hell is going on with these like random close-ups on the ambulance driver. You know, like like his partner says something about you know when Joey dies. And suddenly it just close up to Roy. And I remember as a kid, like, it was the most obvious, you know, hey, here's the killer in, in a film full of red herrings. But, I mean, there's so many obvious nods or, or kind of references to this is the killer. But as a kid, I was more kind of annoyed by those to where, like, when it finally did show Roy, I was like, oh, I get it now. But it's still somewhat underwhelming. Right. Well, I, I think, too, that. Roy only has one other moment in the film uh, when he's doing the cleanup uh, and carrying off like the um, remains of like the the two dudes that got stranded and then got and murdered. And he's really by. excited. Yeah, and he's yeah, basically like, like it's such a one eighty from his performance, you know, or from his uh, his take. Like one scene before when um, Joey's body is revealed where he's like horrified. And this one, he's like talking to me, Sheriff, you know, just like all happy go lucky. And well, it's, you know, it's so. almost like, you know, there was like this sense of satisfaction that he just killed these yep. two greaser kids. Yeah. And what's, what's funny about that. And it's another thing I kind of noticed on my, on a uh, revisit uh, today is Roy really worked fast. I mean, this is this is not Sandra dying in part two and what's supposed to be the same weekend, you know, Rob in four going to look for his sister and having like an encyclopedia knowledge of Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this one, Roy finds out Joey dies and right away, the very next scene, you know, he's pretty much ready to go killing mm-hmm. these, you know, these these rockabilly guys. Uh, which is funny in itself because, I mean, I'm from the Central Valley of California, and if there's ever an area where people think they're stuck in the 50s, it's around here. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've noticed that rockabilly people are kind of like 
all up in their, you know, their friend's ass. Like, they're obsessed with their friends. But this movie, those two guys hate each other. They really like, do. It is so verbally abusive between those friends. It's like, shit, dude, kill these guys already. No, but what <laughs> I'm saying is, like, Roy, if you really think about it, like, Roy, pretty much right away, that same night, went out, bought a jumpsuit, bought, you know, knew all about Jason's M.O., bought a mask, bought a machete, you know, bought, like, basically the uh, mask equivalent of a bald cap to come off like Jason. Like, there's a lot of preparation that he just instantly jumped on, which leads to, like, why isn't, why wasn't Joey in his care? Why did he ditch him out, you know, ditch out on him? Like, what was going why, on with the boy that he would snap so quick? Why does he have a picture of Joey that's, like, two <laughs> weeks old? In his yeah, like, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't Matt and Pam and the rest of the people know who Roy was if, if there's, like, this active communication between Joey and Roy? Yeah, that was always my biggest sticking point is like, how do they not know that that's Joey's dad? Because (laughs) first off, anyone who's ever lived in small town America, of which Crystal Lake and whatever this adjacent neighborhood is supposed to be, knows that everyone knows everybody else. Not to mention it's supposed to be a mental facility. Someone check that kid in. So like when the ambulance shows up and they were like, oh, oops, maybe we should tell Roy before he pulls off the blanket and sees his dead son. <laughs> like I kind of feel like that would have been just, again, I I kind of feel like this is one of those, they were towards the end of the script and they were like, aha, what if we reveal this now? And no one yeah. went back to do that because Agatha Christie famously would just write the book and at the end write who the killer was. And then in her second draft would go through and make adjustments. I feel like that's what happened here. They just didn't go through and make adjustments. Yeah, yo, yeah, for sure. And uh, I mean, picking out these kind of like really bad uh, plot holes, I, I, you know, I hope none of the, the listeners uh, think that, you know, I'm slamming it because I, those are also little quirks that make me love the movie even more. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if I can find a slasher movie that makes me laugh and scratch my head at the same time, like, I think that's a win. And I think this movie of the entire series is the one where you're constantly asking yourself, what the fuck is going on? Right. Like, I mean, not in, like, the way that – and I'm going to keep referencing Jason Goes to Hell. I, I'm not a fan of that movie whatsoever, but, you know, we'll get to that. Uh, but, like, it's not in the sense that, like, oh, you know, we're going to make Jason a worm that possesses people. But it's it's it, it's in the sense that like we don't know what we're doing. We're high off our asses. We're trying to make a Friday the Thirteenth Friday the Thirteenth movie without Jason, but kind of have it be Jason. Like there's so much. It's like throwing the kit that you know like everything and the kitchen sink into a movie. And I think it, it, it's part of the charm of a new beginning. For sure. It, yeah, it absolutely is. And I think that charm as it is like that mix of charm and sleaze starts at the top with Danny Steinman. So let's talk a little bit about what um, Mr. Steinman brings to the table here as a director of the movie. So Michael, you had mentioned before, like he had gotten his start in adult making adult movies, but let's keep in mind that, you know, so did Sylvester Stallone. Wes Craven worked in adult films as well. Like it didn't always have this kind of feel of like it had to be sleazy. And it was if you appeared in porn or worked in porn, your career was pretty much at a dead end at that point. Um, like it was no, for so long. No, and I don't think I think the era of of adult cinema and Forty Second Street cinema as it stood then, as opposed to post the home video boom. Mm-hmm. 
the kind of attitudes about how we uh, I- interacted with with X-rated movies and pornography is a little different, which is interesting because you would you would assume that like now it's more progressive than it would have been then, and in some ways it isn't, in some ways it isn't. But there was something sort of chic about pornography back in the day, and I think too, uh, like I had uh, done an interview with Tom DeSimone, who directed Hell Night and Reform School Girls a, a number of years ago, and what a lot of people didn't know until he had started choosing to talk about it in interviews is that Tom DeSimone came from a world not only of uh, pornography, but he had directed a lot of gay pornography before it was even legal to do so. So he was Mm -hmm. knowingly breaking the law to create this content, and he made upwards of, I think, of like 55 uh, adult motion pictures. And when I talked to him about it, he told me that, you know, for a lot of filmmakers, and this is something I've heard uh, people like David Dakota reiterate, and I had even read an interview once where Wes Craven said something to a similar standpoint, of course there's something titillating about making these movies, but more so for these people who were so passionate about making movies, they were, this was literally film school. It was the idea of, I can go out and make a movie and learn how all of this works and learn how to make movies by doing, and they did. And so Tom DeSimone says, like, I took the skills of learning how to shoot a scene quickly and, like, you know, do creative cuts and creative edits from the time that I made adult films and brought it to, like, when I would go out for movies in the mainstream. And at the time where, like, not everything was connected to your name on the Internet, they could go and do it. And mm-hmm. then, like, by the time they had made their career, it didn't matter. Right. So I think I think that Danny Steinman, probably much like these guys who was working in 42nd Street, uh, was was testing out stuff. And if you've ever seen his notable adult movie that he made, it's this porn movie called High Rise, uh, which I have seen. High Rise is a movie that the plot is that it's uh, a woman who is seeing a sex therapist who's she's not having a good relationship with her husband in the way that they're not having as much sex as she thinks they ought to because she feels she's closed off. And her therapist, in a very porno way, says, you're... Uh, assignment to become more open with yourself and the world around you is to go to a high-rise apartment building in New York and you just fuck your way from the first floor all the way to the penthouse. And that seems very, (laughs) that's literally the plot of the movie. And it could be as sleazy in your brain as you want it to be, but what I failed to mention and I kind of held back on purpose is this movie is a musical. And there are musical numbers and there's dance sequences and like crazy like set pieces that if he just wanted to set out to make a straight, and by that I mean like, you know, linear porn movie where someone just had this like sex scene to sex scene to sex scene, he didn't. He made a movie that just happens to have sex in it. And what I'm looking at is seeing a guy who wanted to make a movie that just happened to have sex. So mm-hmm. I feel like Danny Steinman kind of unfortunately, when compared to other Friday directors, gets this bad rap because he directed porn. And, you know, I, for some people, it depends on your opinion on it, that that's fine. But I'm also like, well, he made a creative porn, which means, to me, he was a filmmaker who was, was trying to do some stuff. Well, I've, I've always uh, tried to fight the stigma that comes with people that are in that field. Uh, I, I made a, a film in 2016 called Love is Dead, a short film. And right. uh, I, out of the three-person cast, two of them are adult film stars. Uh, you know, Joanna Angel and Aaron Thompson, who goes by Small Hounds. Uh, they both do, you know, adult films for Burning Angel. Uh, and I cast them not because, I mean, I was a huge fan of their adult film work, just because, like, 
in a lot of those films, especially I think the ones that Burning Angel does, uh, they're very plot based, and you see that these people can act. You know that they choose to they choose to make adult films because it's just what you know their profession and what they enjoy doing. But they are talented, and I think a lot of people never give people like that a chance. You know, like when uh, two other uh, filmmaker friends, uh, Zach Shawater and uh, B.J. Colangelo, came down to help me produce the film. And while we were shooting uh, Love Is Dead, like we were taken back with how great of actors both of them were. And I don't mean like, you know, the really cliche asshole thing, you know, like, oh, they're good for porn stars. No, they were great actors to the point where, like, we were in tears watching, you know, Joanna Angel break down in the scene in the shower. Like, it was hard to watch. And I think people like them or people like Danny Seinman and, and stuff, there was a stigma that they had the start in adult films, you know, but... I, I also feel like the same stigma goes to like people in comedy trying to do horror. I mean, when it was announced that Danny McBride and David Gordon Green were doing a Halloween film, I mean, everyone jumped at like wanting to tear that to shreds. And that came out my second favorite film in the entire series. Or, you know, Jordan Pill doing Get Out or Us. Jordan Pill is like a horror encyclopedia. That guy is such a huge fan. That I, I think people don't realize that just because you're known for one thing that you can't excel at another. No, it's true. And I, I think that, too, it's that throwing the um, the onus of, of reputation, whatever that means, onto mm-hmm. something is preposterous. I mean, like one of the great joys, and I said this at the beginning when I was talking about my, my love of horror, I love that we – to all extents and purposes, embody uh, an otherness. It's, an, it's a genre of outsiders, and I say that in the way that all of the people that I know who have come to this genre with a genuine love for it and by proxy have formed this community that by and large has general, genuine love for one another, no one who who came to this genre in some way or another, I don't think, didn't feel like an outsider at one point. We connected to this horror genre because we could see that otherness embodied and we understood that otherness and we celebrated that otherness so it bothers me when people all of a sudden take this high and mighty track like well they don't belong here because it's sort of like remember what this is and remember where you came from uh and it's but with regard to people from the world of adult cinema you know Marilyn Chambers in Rabbit mm-hmm. gave one of the greatest David, David Cronenberg performances, and she came from the world of adult films. Uh, you know, Ginger Lynn Allen, I remember, had a, a run of great uh, comedies that used to play on USA Up All Night, the Vice Academy mm-hmm. movies. And mm-hmm. these this just idea that you're right. I, I think that, you know, just to, to put someone in a box is, is unfair and sort of also is against the very tenets by which we all come to this genre. Well, I um, think, too, you see even now, like with, you know, Darcy the Male Girl, uh, a.k.a. Diana Prince, who had a run in adult filmmaking, like she's an integral part of Shudder's Joe Bob Briggs' The Last Drive-In. Um, and I would say that show would, you know, I think we'd still love it, but I don't think it would be half as good as it is right now because you see her keep him in check and kind of stand up to him and not kind of when he goes on some of his a little bit problematic rants every now and again. Uh, but she's also like a, um, you know, real lover of the genre. She really knows her shit. She's run a site called kinky horror for years. Um, mm-hmm. 
which has like a lot of great material in there and a lot of great writing and a lot of great writers have passed through that site. Um, so, you know, Michael, I think to your point and Jerry, to your point, like horror or just really art in general is better when it's more inclusive, when you get different points of view and you get different performances when you kind of look outside your standard box and let everybody kind of tell their stories and share their perceptions. Um, It allows for a lot more empathy and it allows for a lot, kind of like a broader way of thinking. I did not think we would go in this direction talking about Friday the 13th part five, where we'd be bringing up empathy. Uh, But here (laughs) we are. Well, I, I think that it even goes as far as uh, the people who act in these films. A lot of them take it because they want to act, and then they later talk about how awful they thought it came out. I mean, John Shepard, who uh, placed you know Tommy uh, Jarvis in Part Five. I mean, he spent a long time volunteering at a state hospital preparing for the role mm-hmm. when he was cast under the title of Repetition. I mean, he thought. He thought he was going to, you know, he thought it was basically going to win him an award, you know, and then he finds out it's a Friday 13th movie and he has nothing but kind of contempt to say about it, you know, until the convention era comes and, you know, he's getting Mm -hmm. paid $20 to write his name Mm -hmm. or, you know, the actor that played Roy, you know, he's called the film trash many times. It's just like, you know, I think there's this kind of looking down on the genre that so many people kind of unfortunately within the series had, you know, and they didn't realize that, you know, yeah, this isn't high art, but at the same time, I think the fan base and the admiration towards these films is unparalleled by any other genre. You know, there's, there's, you know, I'm not dissing Nicholas Sparks stuff because, you know, I've read the wedding probably eight times, but <laughs> there there will never be a convention of romantic comedies or dramas. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, like you go to horror conventions and there is every kind of walk of life. There's every nationality, every orientation, every kind of individual will be there because they love the genre with a passion. And you know, the, I think the like, horror in general gets looked down on. But when you get a film like A New Beginning, where it is just demolished by critics even more than the other films. Like, there is something about even this film that has heart. It's sleazy. It's one of the cruelest films in the series, I think. Uh, I mean, it has zero regard for its protagonist whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You know, like like the character of Matt or the characters of Matt and Pam, you know, they run this, this home for the troubled youth kind of thing. And if there are two characters in the series that genuinely care about doing what's right or helping people, it's those two characters. I mean, they're getting, they're getting nonstop stuff from, uh, uh, was it Ethel? Ethel and junior. Ethel and junior. They're getting nonstop crap from them, from the sheriff. You know, the mayor is on the sheriff's ass. You know, but Matt and Pam, they see stuff in these kids that no one else does. But what happens? Uh, we just come across Matt with a, you know, like a, a huge nail railroad or something spike. in his head. He's you got know, a railroad spike through, yeah, through exactly. his head. And you don't even he's get the kill on screen. Not at all. He's basically the Miss Jarvis of part five. <laughs> and it's just like, this film has no regard for its characters. The death of Joey, I think, is one of the meanest kills it in the is. entire series. Because... And I'm sorry, I'm going to go on a little rant here, so I, I apologize to our listeners. But anyone who listened to the Part 3 episode, I will fight for Shelly till the end. 
that character I I loved because he wasn't a character that was trying to be annoying. He tried so hard to be liked that it came across the opposite. And if there's a character that takes that and amplifies it, it's it's Joey. Yeah, he's annoying. Yeah, he's frustrating. But all he is, he's basically Shelly on Coke. Again, well, like Joey, he, he, tries, he tries so well, but just bombs horribly. Joey is a little bit. Uh, when I watch this movie again, um, I've worked with um, intellectually disabled adults for a few years, and Joey immediately reminded me of one particular individual I worked with who very good person. I've taken him to breakfast with my family before, like love him to death, but complete and utter unable, un, unable to recognize any sort of social cues whatsoever. And it's funny, the actor who played him, Dominic uh, Braschia, has said yeah. like, yeah, he was written as special <laughs> needs when I got the script, but I wanted to play him as normal. And I'm like, ooh, buddy, you didn't. You failed well, in that I, one. I, I don't think no, – okay, and this is where we're going to get a little intense. The thing about that dude, Dominic – as a victim, or not victim, because fuck that, survivor of mm-hmm. sexual assault as a kid, it's hard for me to watch part five these days. Because mm-hmm. anyone who doesn't know, that is the man that, as of right now, is kind of being classified as the man who raped Corey Haim. I mean, mm. this guy was, a, in a lot of ways, a pedophile. So, like... It's hard when when these films have people like that that kind of have you know some some sketchy uh, behind the scenes behavior. But like to say that he wanted to play him as like normal, I mean maybe it's like the early '80s where you know the whole like being woke didn't exist. Mm-hmm. But even as a father of like two special needs children, mm-hmm. like like what the fuck? Like yeah. I, I hate I hate that like oh you know I don't want to play him as you know challenged. I want to play him as normal like. Like, even that statement, even in the 80s, like, it, it kind of shows kind of what a piece of shit the dude was. But he plays him as challenge, and he plays it for laughs. Like, that's the thing about that character. There's no... It's you're not meant to feel... Yes, that's exactly it. Like, you're not meant to sympathize for Joey outside of him. Like, when he gets that axe to the back, like, I think you're meant to cheer that as an audience. Um really well, the way that like, he plays that character. And I think that that speaks to like an other thing that is not discussed uh, as much as it ought to be. And it, it, like, uh, I, I'm with you, Jerry, and uh, the way uh, the discussion about the actor, I, I think that, you know, with the lens of time and the problematic uh, history and revelations about Corey Feldman that we know, it makes it difficult to engage with that character now, knowing what we know or uh, what has been put forth. So I'm going to kind of, uh, just for the sake of the conversation, put that in a, a box to the side for the second, just to discuss the presentation of the fictional character mm-hmm. and, and sort of where we're at at this moment in time and how characters like this were handled. Uh, there is still this issue, in, in, and it prevails today, but like what we're, we're looking at is sort of sizest humor. Like, you know, he's a slobby, larger man who could not in any way, shape, or form be presented as likable. He's got to have chocolate on his face, and he can't be clean, and it's like he's rubbing food on things. And you're supposed to be like, ha-ha, look at the gross, messy, fat guy. And then they make him extra annoying on top of that 
So it's sort of just like, like a one-dimensional stereotype that they wanted uh, to present to get us from point A to point B. And, and that sort of is where these movies do fail sometimes in the way that they just take stereotypical ideas and kind of the cruel presentation that we have with with certain stereotypes just to shoehorn different things into the movies. And that was something to me during this rewatch where I was just like, okay, there's this is kind of like, there's a little sizest cruelty more than anything. Mm-hmm. Well, that well, ends, uh, when it comes to Vic, the character of Vic, you know, Mark, Mark Venturini, who, I mean, unfortunately passed away very early on. I mean, he was great in this movie, the one scene he's in. And I mean, I, he's one of my favorite characters in Return of Living Dead. But uh, speaking on that, like, where was Vic's background check? Like, nobody just instantly chops someone up for a candy bar with having some, like, serious, uh, you know, I hate to use the word issues because, I mean, I, I don't like, you know, calling anyone with mental illness, you know, you know, like, different. Like, it's, it's something that everyone struggles with. But for someone to chop someone up with a with an axe over a candy bar, there's some serious things going on. Right. It's it's not the same as you know Violet being kind of like uh, a rebel who wants to you know pop and lock. Right. <laughs> well, I think you know you bring up. I think maybe the biggest flaw of the film overall is everybody fits in this very small little circle like violet is kind of like your rebellious punk joey is the annoying person vic is your psychopath um you know you have a debbie sue Voorhees character who's like she's like the sex pot of the movie overall and you contrast that with what we had in part four which you know i think we spent the bulk of our part four episode talking about how great these characters were how fully developed they were how you you know if you took the horror movie elements out of it you had a great like teen sex comedy and all of that is kind of like ripped away from this movie and it's just like beat by beat by beat is what you're going through with maybe a little bit more quirkiness thrown in as opposed to like having a fully developed personality. Now you have Ethel who is just weird. Right. And also, uh, I mean, I growing up any small issues I had with five stemmed from that stuff and not the lack of Jason. I, mm-hmm. I, like I said, I enjoy five as just like a entertaining movie on its own. Mm-hmm. But what really, even growing up, like made me feel kind of weird about it at times is how it did have that jump. You go from four, and I will probably, and I'm sorry, but I'll probably end up saying this every episode, listeners. You go from four, where if you take Jason out, still a great coming-of-age movie, mm-hmm. to five, where, like I said, the only two characters that you really, really care about Reggie and Demon. I mean, even right. Matt and Pam, who are great characters, they're not really given much to work with. As right. far as like you know, and and I think the whole final girl kind of label is kind of you know I, I use the word problematic in itself. But when it comes to that kind of setup and that kind of character uh, trope, I, I also think uh, Melanie Kinnaman, who played Pam, she was good in what she had, but like I think. Maybe Steinman and the writers of the film kind of focused on meeting that quota of, you know, deaths and sex that they kind of maybe skimmed over character development Mm -hmm. in a lot of places. Right. The one area that I will give um, Steinman and company credit for is this is the first Friday the 13th film where you do have 
african-american characters in it period i mean part three you have uh ali it's the you know kind of like pseudo villain for a little bit of it but you know this is the first one where you have maybe a little bit of depth here in representation to characters overall with grandpa with reggie the reckless and with demon um and even in the characterization now i'm going to kind of like do a 180 of what i just said but like miguel nunez in that really brief like five minutes on screen they could have played him like a lot harder a lot tougher like he's the bad boy that reggie's not allowed to go see but there's like this genuine warmth and camaraderie between the two brothers there and you can see how like demon wanted to look out for reggie overall and how much affection there was there this is the first friday the 13th movie to actually do that like that's one area that none none of the other films i think really have that representation in any way shape or form that that scene in in uh in particular reminds me of the scene and this is weird because they're completely different characters, but the scene from the final chapter with mm-hmm. the whole Jarvis family coming in for the hug. Yeah. Uh, you know, like Demon is supposed to be a badass, but Demon and his girlfriend are two of the sweetest characters in the entire film. Mm-hmm. I mean, right when Reggie leaves, first thing Demon says is how much he's going to miss his little brother. Yeah. And can we can we just take a second and, and just really addressing the fact that that scene has some of the funniest dialogue in the entire mm-hmm. series? I mean yeah. – you know, Reggie, like Reggie leaves. <laughs> Reggie leaves, and like Demon's trying to be all like he's sad, trying to like confide in his girlfriend, and he talks about he's gonna miss her, and she's like, yeah, he's a cutie pie. Want to hit this? And holds up a joint. Mm-hmm. Like it's hilarious. Or Demon's on the toilet, and he's trying to be tough to his girlfriend, who's trying to spook him, and his delivery is just so like non-confrontational. He's like, you know, you're gonna get it, bitch. Don't try to get it, bitch. It, 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 it sounds like, like a Chappelle show character. Like, mm-hmm. I, I love it. it. It's hilarious. Yeah, I, I do too. And then they start singing a cappella to one another. Which, oh. Who doesn't do that? I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of mornings that I've been on the crapper and my wife and I just bust out in song <laughs> with one another. Oh, God. So those that damn empanadas. Just that whole family dynamic. Uh, you know, I, I think the grandfather was another character that is is one of the the few characters that when they die, you actually do mm-hmm. feel bad because yes. when it comes, it's another off screen death. When you see it, I mean, he just he wasn't just like stabbed; like his eyes are missing. Mm-hmm. You know, he's bloody as hell. Like when, when the good people get it in this film, they get it bad. What I'm was wondering. It? Two, I'm kind of fascinated by this idea that I've been thinking about this while while uh, this conversation has been going on, that maybe, you know, despite the one-dimensional presentation of some of the characters, that this is one of the few Friday movies that really deals with the idea of repercussions and trauma mm-hmm. in the way that we sort of see what happens afterwards. And I... I it's something that I've talked about before in other contexts uh, with this idea of, of slasher sequels. And I realize it's not it's not big budget box office appeal to show like what trauma you would go through the next day. But, you know, the idea that like when Sydney goes to college and Scream 2, she's just like, um, um, you know, I now have caller ID, but I'm going to go to theater class. No, your life would be ruined. You would be mentally destroyed by that i mean some people are more resilient than others but it takes a while to kind of pick up the pieces of something like this and you know even alice after the first movie in part two she's a little skittish but she's living on her own and she seems okay you know i I kind of am fascinated that part five is one of the first ones to really show 
how much the presence of Jason affected Tommy Jarvis. And then by extension, when he goes to uh, the home with all the other kids, what you're talking about, each one of them were sort of getting a window into their lives briefly. The idea that Reggie has this sort of connection uh, with Demon and Demon really always wanted to look out for his brother, but he can't because of the circumstances. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know that that was maybe like intentional trauma and pathos built in, but the more I think about it, the more I kind of like that read because it gives me a little more affinity for the characters because this movie re- literally takes place at a home for people who are recovering mm-hmm. in various ways from the trauma they lived with, whether we as the audience know what that is or not. I've, I've always been fascinated by films, especially in the, the slasher or horror genre that do deal with that because, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm pretty open about having had a very abusive childhood and that kind of trauma, it stays with you. It stays with you your entire life. I mean, I'm almost 40 now and it's still something I deal with on a daily basis. But when films are bold enough to do that, I mean, yeah, it's Friday the 13th part five, but you're right. It does do that. It doesn't, I don't think it's as successful as other films were. And I think the Halloween series in particular was maybe the slasher franchise that tried to do that the most. I mean, you have Halloween H2O, which, I mean, I'll probably get crucified for saying this. I'm not a big fan of, but I think that the intention of trying to, you know, rep, like show what would happen to Laurie Strode after that, after the events of Halloween, it's it's interesting. But then you have like a, you know, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, where it shows that trauma and it, it approaches it in a way that just, I think, just fails i mean laurie strode ends up being like you know having a tat she has tattoos now and a charles manson poster and dreadlocks that she cusses a lot and she hates everyone like it's it's weird and you know you have the newest halloween which i think is a really good really solid uh look at trauma but like you said friday the 13th 5 is one of the first kind of slasher films that, that that did that and i think that's where you know, I, I did mention that, you know, a lot of maybe not a lot of the characters you kind of care for, but I still think that below that, kind of just below the surface, there is a lot of heart to this film. Yeah. And I do give the film credit because it doesn't take the easy route where all signs pointing to Tommy being your next killer overall, although that's kind of the ending that you get. But you're looking at, you're supposed to look at someone who's completely broken and the signs are pointing to him maybe being the person behind everything and it's really uh ends up not being that throughout the movie and you see you know john shepherd really with minimal dialogue just everything done through his face and his body language and just like the moments where he's prone to this really sharp quick violence overall like he basically turns into um oh shit Johnny, the dude from the Karate Kid, who I can't think of his name right now, um, but he basically just turns into like a street fighter, basically in this movie, and I think that that's a really interesting take on the character, and it's not that's, what you get in Part Six. No, not at all. And I, I that's funny that you say that because on my notes uh, today when I was rewatching it, the the question was when did Tommy, you know, turn into a character from Street Fighter Two? Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> but no, I I, I like that. And there's a, there's a scene in the film that probably maybe I always read into too much, but the whole film 
there's all these little kind of nods to maybe Tommy as the killer. I mean, he's kind of losing it as the film goes on, a little more and more. He's getting more violent. He's having visions. I mean, he's getting very anxiety-filled and everything. And you kind of start to think that he is the killer. I mean, it, it kind of goes that route for a while. But there's one scene where, you know, pseudo-Jason is coming after Reggie and Pam. And Reggie looks down, and Tommy just kind of runs up into the rain and looks there. And it's that small just running up and the look that Reggie gives him that even as a viewer, you see it and you get this kind of like uh, kind of pride. You're proud of the fact that Tommy didn't break and he's not mm-hmm. that person. And that's what makes the very end kind of twist thing, you know, where he's standing there at the mask. I, I, I've always despised that ending right. because that whole arc, that arc of a damaged person Having that crossroads in front of them, that crossroad in front of them to where they could go, you know, to the left and be that 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 violent person that, you know, they were exposed to with Jason and that trauma or they could rise above that. I think that small little scene shows such a good character arc and kind of part five to me attempted to be this kind of conclusion to this great character that we got in four. And I don't think it works 100%, but little things like that does. I think part six, maybe that Tommy Jarvis is kind of the conclusion that we really want. But I do love that arc in five that you get with with uh, John Shepard's portrayal. No, I, I think, you know, Shepard is kind of the odd man out when we talk about the Tommy Jarvis trilogy. Um, we all remember Corey, uh, for obvious reasons, Corey Feldman um, <laughs> and um, – we also, you know, think really highly of uh, Tom Matthews' portrayal, but Shepard gets left out. Um, he kind of has the least amount to do, but I think he does the most with what he's given overall. I think it's a pretty kind of fascinating performance overall. Well, I think it takes like oh, 15 to 20 minutes of the movie before he actually has like a, a full sentence of a line. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, but I love that, you know, that introduction overall, they remind the audience of, you know, when he, when Reggie and Tommy meet one another and Reggie is kind of like, you know, I'm the reckless and he's like kind of giving Tommy a bunch of shit. And then Tommy puts on the mask and scares the hell out of Reggie right away. Like, I just love that little moment. Like there's still a little bit of that kind of punk kid that's there in him. Well, that and I, I think in a lot of ways, Tommy kind of that's kind of I think why he kind of latches on to Reggie. I think Tommy sees himself from the part four era in Reggie. Mm-hmm. You know, Tommy's very standoffish at first, you know, with the masks. And then Reggie kind of calls him on it. You know, you know, you, act, you know, acting like you made this yourself kind of thing. And he, and he you know, explains that he did. And I think there's kind of there, that kinship, that friendship kind of is based out of that. You know, Tommy being standoffish at first and then kind of seeing himself in Reggie. Yeah. What do we think of this through line through the movie where the sheriff is convinced it's Jason um, and the mayor is kind of pushing back? Like you have that scene with the mayor where he's really going all in and over the top say, you know, like, this is your Jason Voorhees, like, and he pours the um, cigar ash into his hand. What do we think of that kind of through line of the film where there's kind of hints that it might be Jason, but, you know. Well, um, I, I, I think that maybe, uh, I think this is the worst thing you could do for a franchise. Because mm-hmm. whether or not they planned on, you know, this whole new trilogy where there would be a different killer every, you know, that's fine. Whether or not they planned on that, putting themselves in a box by saying, you know, Jason was cremated. 
you know, like looking back and I'm, I'm not like the continuity police with these movies. I mean, I, I love the Texas Chainsaw movies, but I, I also think it has the worst continuity of any film series in the world. Right. But I mean, little things like talking about how Jason was cremated and a bunch of other stuff, like it, it puts it into a box that, you know, when you get Jason lives and he's, uh, you know, right there, uh, you know, it, it kind of makes five look even worse. But the idea that maybe tricking the audience into thinking that, you know, it could be Jason or, you know, it could be someone else. Mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting, uh, interesting approach to say the least. Yeah. Well, I do think that too, in a, a, despite continuity flaws, there's an, a fascinating kind of duality that exists between five and six where both five and six open exactly the same. The idea mm-hmm. of Tom, Tommy going to Jason's grave on a rainy night uh, and and what I think is was very kind of prescient of what, Mag- what Tom McLaughlin does in the next movie is I think opening it the exact same way that Five did was was a calculated move and beyond just giving them the opportunity to do their sort of like Universal monster take on it uh, I think because they knew fans were cranky after Five they sort of were like look we're we're literally kind of giving you a reboot right from from the get go of how we did the last movie but. What's fascinating then, too, is when you look at five and the idea that it's the sheriff who thinks that Jason's back and no one wants to listen. Then in six, like Tommy is so very like vehemently trying to tell the sheriff and the sheriff won't listen. It's just it's sort of just franchise construction wise. I think there's a lot more synergy between these two movies than fans give credit to. and I do think it may, it allows for a really interesting evolution of Tommy Jarvis's character. Of course, there are are beats that are missing between five and six that show us, um, you know, where Tommy is and how he he you know became <laughs> the Tom Matthews version that we know. But I don't know. I I think that it would have been interesting in an alternate reality to see where this franchise would have gone if five had been commercially successful and they had spun it into a new trilogy of movies with five being the beginning and Tommy being the killer of six and, and vice versa. Uh, well, that ends. I also think that the, the filmmaking team behind the fifth movie, uh, you know, kind of going speaking on what I said earlier about kind of abandoning the, or kind of forgetting the idea of, you know, the direction that they had chosen to go. Uh, with with Roy especially, uh, I think there's a lot of it's disjointed a lot of the time. And you know, I, I don't want to turn this into distraction movie because I I'm a big fan of it. But everything from Tommy just being so different than he was in four to uh, I mean, like I said, the the stuff at the end, you know, Roy getting kind of banged up in a way that only Jason would. Uh, you know it. It's, it's inter- interesting because I feel like that's a big reason why fans kind of were turned off by it is that it gave them shades of what they had seen before and that it's exciting, but it also went in ways that it went in directions that felt really alien and, and weird and kind of awkward. Yeah. And I would say like one of the really most awkward things about the movie is like, I can't place the setting of it in relation to the four movies that came before it. 
Like, even more so than part three, like, this does not look anything like a camp area in New Jersey. This looks like Southern California. Um, It's interesting. uh, It's interesting that you say that, because I asked earlier on Twitter if anyone had any questions for this episode. And uh, our friends at the uh, Kill by Kill podcast, they're always quick to ask some really fun questions. Mm -hmm. And one of them is where in their question, word for word, was where in the uh, worldwide sports or whatever it is does this maybe take place and it, that was something i've always wondered but then our you know nat brimmer from last episode obviously knew exactly where it takes place and so he had this to say and i wrote it down i think uh word for word here nat definitely knows exactly where it takes place basically the mayor and the police captain when they're arguing they talk about jason's grave like it's local and in part three, it mentions that they're in Pinehurst County. So the fact that, like, Nat was basically saying that it's not Crystal Lake. Uh, it's another city within the same county. So I understand mm-hmm. it looking a little different, but it, it, it's dusty. It's, yeah. it's just so different than, like, a New Jersey or, you know, well, an the- area like that. I saw that question as well uh, when you had tweeted it, and I must confess that I kind of slid over to the uh, Blu-rays and I popped uh, the six in because I know okay. at the beginning of six, when Tommy goes in to tell the sheriff uh, at the, after the opening credits, you know that Jason's back. The sheriff is like, "You're that Tommy Jarvis kid. You were in." some psych ward and the sheriff in six directly references the fact that the psych ward is like somewhere not in town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm wondering too, this is, this is like some deep nerd stuff. I'm wondering right. too, if uh, the, when Tommy arrives in the van, uh, the van has uh, the, the label Unger, uh, which might be the name of the town that they're in. Uh, mm-hmm. Because Pinehurst is the name of the the home that they're at, which I would assume be named for the county. So yeah. they just might be like a couple towns over in the same county. So, I mean, yeah, from a logistical standpoint, I, I understand it's not in Crystal Lake, so maybe it'll look different. But the fact, like, you know, I'm born and raised in California. I've lived here my entire life. It's very, it's very California-like in this movie. Right. Uh, but also... Uh, you know, I was I was trying to make a point earlier, and I kind of got stumbled uh, because of this awful heat. But uh, when it comes to you know them, the producers not kind of knowing where they wanted to go with the film, uh, five to me it, it offers ex- exposition in a way that we hadn't seen before. In the previous films, we got that right up front, you know, and and it wasn't it wasn't to explain what you just saw because you have no idea what you just saw. It was to bring you up to speed of all the entries before. In five, you get that at the very end after the Roy reveal. You know, they go into detail about, you know, this is why he did it. This is it. And I, I almost feel like it was from a, like a screenwriting perspective, like, oh, no, you know, maybe we need to explain exactly what the hell we just showed the audience. What do you guys think about the actual uh, the kids in the home? Because, I mean... Yeah, I, I mentioned kind of this uh, one-dimensional take on a lot of the characters. And a lot of them, they kind of come off as caricatures of certain stereotypes. Uh, and the one that drives me nuts, you know, it, it wasn't Joey per se, because I just feel like that was a horrible misstep in general. But the one that's as a character that drove me nuts is the character of Jake. 
mm-hmm. because there's there's a it's it's very subtle and for some reason I you know 38 years old and I just picked this up for the first time today. There's that scene where Jake is kind of uh, you know talking about his feelings for uh, Robin when they're watching you know the movie and you know Robin's not kind of getting the hint that Jake's into her and finally when he's upfront about it that he wants to be with her. You know, he doesn't just follow it with like, oh, I have feelings with you. He follows it with a, basically he just wants to have sex with her. Yes. And she, she turns him down and he does what most, unfortunately, and I know I'm going to get a lot of, of bros being pissed at me if they like the show. But unfortunately, he does what, the, what a lot of straight white males tend to do when they don't get the way they don't get the response that they want. He instantly starts yelling at her that, you know, he was joking. He's making it up. You know, he he's, not att- he's, he's not attracted to her. And, and, and it, it gave me this weird feeling today watching it that like it's almost like a, it felt like he was trying to tear her down saying that, you know, she's not attracted right. because because he got rejected. And it reminded me of something that happened. And I won't go into detail about this because I don't want to take up a long time. But something happened around here to uh, a friend of mine that I know. Uh, she's a model. Uh, you know, she was at a bar with her friends and uh, this guy came up to her tried to hit on her and she said she's not interested very polite and being that kind of like straight white male stereotype what did he do he took a glass and slammed it into her face leading to needing plastic surgery and everything else and i feel like the characters like jake those are the people that end up doing shit like that and those are the characters that really just kind of irk me like i said the joey character was i think just a a horrible misstep in general but Especially in five, like there are these characters that that just come off very scummy. I mean, even so, the character of, of Billy, you're not supposed to like him, but I mean, he just it, a lot of these characters come off like there's something just very uh, just deep rooted like anger towards women, uh, you know, even more than other other entries. Well, I want to talk about Ethel in a minute, but getting back to 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 Jake. One thing I noticed when I watched this movie Sunday morning, and I never picked up on it before, he immediately, after getting rejected, goes to Violet's room and is mm-hmm. like, I need to talk to you. And you know that he's going to pull the same shtick right there after getting rejected. Like, he was going to, he just wanted to get laid and he didn't care with who it was. So he's like, All right, yep. this person rejected me. Who's next on the assembly line? And it's really, it makes it difficult to have any sympathy for him whatsoever well that not only that because i i think that's definitely what he did but at the same time another possibility is that he could do what a lot of men unfortunately do is they get rejected and they go to that person's best friend and Mm -hmm. say a bunch of shit about that person to try to make them look better and that's another thing that that always kind of uh kind of made me think of that when i think of that character jake I mean, I would like to think that they were woke enough in 1984 when they were shooting this movie to have that as a commentary on toxic uh, masculinity and, and aggression. And it definitely reads that way. Uh, I don't know if that was the intent, but I think, too, you know, that like honesty where just being honest, honesty for honesty's sake, that. There are a number of characters across the Friday the 13th franchise who we as audience members know uh, are merely exist as fodder and we're not supposed to like them. And I feel like I I definitely don't mind Jake dying because he is kind of a piece of shit character. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I I I think that 
this franchise is always good at sort of affecting that balance of having kind of like the asshole to good person ratio. They know that if everyone's terrible, you're not going to connect with the movie at all and or you don't care about any of the characters. So you're not going to have that fist pump of victory when when they take back the night. But alternatively, they know that if you love everybody, it's going to be like a very miserable watch watching everybody die. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like one thing that I always talk about uh, when I discuss this franchise is that there is something to be said about how this this franchise specifically always kind of veers into the territory of um, punishment of the popular kids, i.e. the kids who would be the bullies. Like it's it's always kind of like the jocks and the and the cheerleader types who are overly sexualized and mean and treat the Tom, like, you know, Ginny's sort of a tomboy or like, you know, the idea that like some of the other characters are outsiders and not the popular kids and they're made to feel not popular. Jason always takes those, those, uh, the bullies out first. And that's sort of like, I think kind of what nestles you back into this world. I also think that maybe we were spoiled with the final chapter in the sense that even the assholes had a lot of humanity to them. I mean, the character of Ted, you know, he was in a lot of ways, you know, somewhat of a bully to, uh, you know, Crispin Glover's character. But at the same time, there was heart to know that he was kind of, for the most part, just joking around with his friend. And when Ted got rejected, I mean, he didn't act out on on the women that rejected him. I mean, if anything, he smoked weed and watched porn. I mean, <laughs> I, right. you know, maybe maybe we were just lucky. I think in that movie, and I think uh, a lot of the backlash that came with Five, I think, came from the fact that we got that character development in Four. And you're totally right. A lot of these movies have those kind of asshole characters that you know we're we're kind of set up to want to see die. Uh, I, I think, unfortunately, after getting a film like Final Chapter, where each kill in the movie you feel, you know, you really do. Even the, like I said, even the characters that are kind of assholes, you kind of feel bad when they die. Uh, well, to, I think to, it was said at the top uh, of the show too. This is a meaner movie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, definitely. And I think it works for the film. And, uh, you know, I'm in no way just like trashing it because, like I said, I mean, I'm quite fond of this movie. But mm-hmm. I, I do think it's interesting that the characters were written in in ways that were just not even the film's not even mean just mean in in the violent sense. But I think even in its portrayal of, of its protagonists, I mean, you know, there there's such a, a violence to Tommy. And, you know, we, we understand why because of all the stuff that he went through in four but I, I think just the film in general has that kind of tone. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think that it, it, it does kind of go back to what we were saying earlier about dealing uh, or not dealing with, with the day after. This movie also has a lot of aggression in it and sort of what happens when people don't handle their aggression. Uh, and I don't I, I, I'm fast. I'm sure there's probably like an a, academic essay to be written about sort of the lack of sympathy that is is lost between four and five in terms of character presentation. Because I, I don't disagree with you. I think that there's there's just such a aggressive meanness to how this is presented. And we get characters who, by and large, just sort of represent the trope rather than uh, make us connect with them first. 
I mean, you get characters like Ethel, who is just like, there is not a nice, a shred of niceness <laughs> in her whole body. She's just mean and miserable to everyone she meets. And you know that, like, you know the character of Ethel casually throws around the N-word in everyday conversation. Like, that's just who she is. Like, she's awful. She hates her kid. Her kid, I mean, Junior is very dim, but he's, like, feeding off of, like, all that hatred that his mother has. He's feeding off that, and he's throwing that back out into the world. And it's just, like, it's ugly, but it's also the way it's portrayed is kind of hysterical at the same time. Well, also, I mean, growing up, I hated the character of Junior with a passion. But, uh, you know, my, my son, uh, two of my children uh, are on the spectrum. You know, they have autism, and, and my, my youngest... Uh, he has echolalia, so he'll repeat everything that he hears, mm-hmm. every single thing. And now, like, revisiting that movie, I saw the character of Junior kind of do exactly the same. And you, you start to feel bad for Junior because the reason he is the way he is is because of Ethel. There are those very cruel... I mean, no holds barred kind of, I mean, you could, yeah, you're right. She probably does say the N-word every day. She's probably homophobic. She, I mean, there, I I don't see a single redeeming thing about Ethel. And I don't think that Junior, I don't think his uh, reason for repeating is echolalia per se, but I, I feel that maybe that character gets a little too much shit from people when, and it's obviously not written to be this deep. But I also think Junior's most definitely a product of his environment. Well, I, I, the end, the ending is is something. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I know I mentioned not being a huge fan of the ending, but I also think, you know, yeah, they were trying to do something different. But at the same time, I think doubling down on the kind of idea that Tommy would continue it at the end of four, uh, I think when they have that kind of redemption moment in five, when Tommy shows up to try to help save the day, and he's really bad on it bad at it i mean tommy just gets screwed up non-stop when he shows up at the end uh i I think redeeming him and showing that he didn't become that person i I think that kind of shows that heart that i spoke of in friday the team five and that ending i think it kind of throws it in the trash in a lot of ways well i definitely think there are like studio shoehorned endings right where they definitely want you to be ready for the sequel that they invariably want to make. So you also, you know, buy a ticket. And sometimes the unfortunate thing about that is no matter what heart and soul or pathos or like character development you do, there's always somebody who's looking at the, the bottom line of financial return. And, uh, with with major movie franchises, as much as it pains any film fan to hear, that's always a factor. And yeah. so when I see stuff like this, it, it, it's a bummer to know that that was put there solely to prepare you for a sequel so you would like once again turn around and buy a ticket. I would like to at least believe that it's kind of an ending in the way that, say... Th- the killer popping up at the very last before credits second at the end of I Know What You Did Last Summer is mm-hmm. because then, you know, when we open on I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, that never happened. It was just like right. a, a jump scare to get us to the next movie. Um, I typically disregard the last minute of any horror movie as something that's actually happened. That's smart. Yeah, I just usually just yeah. 
I just like disregard it. Like didn't happen. Figment of all of our imaginations. Like the ending of Sinister Two. I think I, I love the Sinister movies, and I enjoy Sinister Two. I think more than most. And that last minute to me is a cheat. Yeah, that's one that Dude. like really stands out. You know, I'll I'll, I'll keep this to a minimum because I don't want to take up you know a lot of time with Sinister talk on a Friday Thirteenth episode. But you have no idea how happy you just made me. I got so much shit when I, I put Sinister 2 as my favorite movie of that year for, like, mm. I think my list for Fangoria when I wrote for them. And uh, it just, it makes me so happy to meet someone that really enjoyed Sinister 2. I remember yeah. at Fantastic Fest, I went up to uh, uh, Scott Cargill, and I told mm. him how much I like Sinister 2. And, you know, we were both kind of buzzed at the time a few years ago, and he was just like, mm. oh, you're the one guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's great. So... Um, one last thing I want to bring up, and there's some more we can definitely add more. I just want to talk about, um, you know, for a movie that we, you know, has got a reputation for being really skeezy and a little sl- uh, sleazy and skeezy, a bit scuzzy. What I really liked when I was reading Crystal Lake Memories was how uh, Danny Steinman had nothing but nice things to say about every single person that he worked with on this movie, with one exception that we'll get to. But I mean, it, it feels like by and large, with a couple exceptions, I think uh, Melanie Kinnaman stands out as someone who did not have a good experience making this movie as Pam. Um, but everyone had mostly good things to say about working with Steinman um, as a director except for um, Dick Weand, who played Roy. Um, it's kind of hysterical because Steinman, after saying all these like really nice things, he goes, he goes all in on this guy. He's like, and I just want to quote the book here really quick, reading once again from Crystal Lake Memories, which is a must-have for any fan of the series. Dick Weand. What a complete fucking asshole this guy was. (laughs) He was hired to play Roy, the fake Jason. In his mind, he became the star of the movie. He had nothing nice to say about anything. The script was a piece of shit. Everyone was out to get him. The Jason mask was crap. Transportation horrible. Food tasteless. And he was embarrassed to be in the film. Funny thing was, I met him again in 2009 in Dallas. All smiles, so complimentary. Get this. He told me he's been going to these Friday conventions since they began, and he's made quite a bit of money. He claims it's given his life purpose. The idiot had no lines and only two medium close-ups in the film. People (laughs) do not give this low-life piece of shit a dime for an autograph. Oh, my God. I love it. It's it's been a couple years since I've read that book, but, man, that's great. And also, uh, I mean, I, I know we're probably not to spoil uh, future episodes, but uh, I'll make this small spoiler anyways. We are having the writer of Crystal Lake Memories on our part seven episode. So that's definitely going to be a lot of fun. It will be. Uh, you know, I can honestly, I'm, I'm honored to say that I had met Danny Steinman a handful of times. Uh, and one of the times that uh, we interacted, uh, we did this convention at Cinema Wasteland, and he did a live commentary track with part five. Oh, wow. Uh, and it was really cool to listen to him kind of go scene by scene and uh, sort of comment on a lot of the things that we in independent ways arrived at during this conversation. But he also was just a general assessment of Danny Steinman. He, he was just a very soft-spoken guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would not claim to know how he was on the making of a movie because like who you are at the height of the coke-fueled 1980s and who you are like in the mid-thousands 
could be a world of difference. As we know, we all grow, we all change. But he had uh, nothing but but grand and nice things to say about everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very, very um, pleased about the experience. I mean, of course, he he talked a lot about how this movie had studio interference and, you know, they cut a lot, uh, cut great, great uh, number of scenes down. And of course, like, as, as I had alluded to earlier, like that was just sort of par for course on, on the Friday movies. We know, uh, as I said, uh, John Carl Beekler had an entire different version of seven that was, was altered by the MPAA. But um, yeah, it was just really cool to, to know that Danny Steinman uh, was very proud of this movie though it was the black sheep of the franchise. And mm-hmm. you had mentioned that Mel- Melanie Kinnaman did not have a, a, a great time making this. And uh, I've also had, you know, great pleasure of, of getting to know her uh, over the years as well. And what I do like about my my limited interactions with, with Melanie is is she will tell you it was not great. She'll, she'll be the, the, the first person to admit that it was a difficult film for her. But she had kind of that similar trajectory, I think, that someone like Betsy Palmer did, where when she realized how these movies affect people and how they, uh, how people embrace them, it's sort of like uh, you were saying earlier about horror conventions bring people of all walks of life, and uh, from because they celebrate these and they connect to them. When, when she saw that, I, I think it has given her a new appreciation for it. And I love seeing on her Facebook feed, she'll she'll post like, you know, uh, have a good weekend, campers, or yeah, when it's Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. she'll post fan art. And so it's, it's cool to see people who, even though maybe at the time were uncertain of, of kind of the nature of the film they were making, understanding that when you're part of something like this, it becomes bigger than you and you either get to embrace that or always fight against it, and how miserable must it be to always fight against it? Because what fun is that? Well, yeah, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, uh, actors, you know, that did horror films early on in the career, they look down on it. But I also don't think that they have a lot of exposure that a lot of these horror people do have with conventions, getting to know fans. I mean, there's that very cliche, you know, this movie saved my life, this movie did that. You know, as a kid, these movies very much did do that. You know, like speaking on that abuse that I was talking about, like that was my only escape to live vicariously through these movies, you know, because I knew when I was going to get home, you know, things were going to get dark. And I feel like when actors like that go to these conventions, and I, I think that's a way what or a reason why I try to champion conventions so much, is because it is a good way to talk to these people that were in these movies and maybe. You know, they walk away, like you said, with a new appreciation, and they walk away knowing that these movies aren't just throwaway movies to a lot of people, that they're very important to the development. And a lot of people, especially children, I mean, a lot of them kind of live vicariously through these characters. I mean, how special is it to watch the original Halloween and see Laurie, someone who, you know, was kind of a bookworm shy person, you know, rise up and be able to survive? I mean, it's beautiful. Or like a film like Texas Chainsaw. These aren't throwaway movies, and these aren't throwaway characters, and, and horror, I think, is the most important and also relevant genre around for the, for those reasons. I absolutely agree. I've always said that horror 
when done well, can be the most powerful of genres for exactly the reason that you're saying, because you can utilize that otherness to speak to issues that maybe the world is not ready to address head on. Uh, the monster can be allegorical. The, the the ideas can be bigger. It's it's funny even when we talk about queer reads of movies. I frequently utilize Laurie Strode as an example of otherness because when people talk about other and horror, they most frequently go to the idea of the monster being other, like the Frankenstein monster or the creature from the Black Lagoon, and how they're outsiders in society. But characters like Laurie Strode or Ginny Field, uh, you know, the idea that they are not the popular girls and even if they've got a group of friends who are and they you can see Lori just wanting to belong and wanting to to connect to them but it is Lori ultimately who has to not only fight with herself but like fight this allegorical boogeyman to become who she needs to be and you're right Mm -hmm. that's beautiful Mm -hmm. whenever i think of horror and i think of like the sense of community and the sense of belonging i often think of what joss whedon said when he was writing for buffy the vampire slayer and he would say like all of the monsters in that in that show they're allegories for the problems that everybody goes through that you would have like you know crushing depression anxiety trouble with parents trouble at school trouble fitting in and your monsters are really nothing more than stand-ins for that and i think horror more than any other genre allows you to externalize these problems like i in about one month will be graduating with my master's in counseling and i'm really excited and one of the modalities of, of mental health treatment i really like is this idea of narrative therapy this idea that we often take our problems and and we ex- internalize them we are that we are a depressed person we are anxious we have you know trauma as opposed to taking that issue and then kind of externalizing it and making it something that is different from ourselves uh it's not a part of us we are not just that trauma we are not just that depression or anxiety um you know i think horror allows you that ability to really um kind of come together as a community and kind of tackle these things head on well also and this is um very short and off topic but i i agree with you 100 percent. so many times we kind of define ourselves with what our struggles are mm-hmm. i mean even recently and i don't know how into detail i want to go with this but a few weeks ago my wife and i lost a baby uh and you know that daughter that we were going to have was i mean it that loss was so soul crushing that it just changed me for the worst for uh, probably a good week a couple weeks and it was only after you know uh talk with you know uh, a therapist about it that they they tried to recommend putting a name or giving an identity to that you know instead of just internalizing it so what we did we got home we wrote down our daughter's name we wrote down what we think thought she would be into you know what she would look like and all this stuff and it's helped dramatically and i think horror films when used when done right, like Michael said, can be similar to that. The Babadook, uh, films like uh, this year's Starfish. Those films are so good because they take ideas of monsters and grief and trauma and PTSD and so many things and use them. It, they put a face to that trauma. I mean, The Babadook is very much about a mother and her child, uh, you know, not knowing how to cope with the loss of, you know, the, the father, the husband. Or Starfish, that movie is about a woman really not knowing how to let go of loss. And I feel like horror 
is the perfect way to address that. And in small ways, yeah, it's it, yeah, it's like a real sleazy movie. But I, I think, like Michael said earlier, I think Friday Thirteenth Five really did, maybe to a lesser degree, really like shine a light on on the aftermath of, of trauma and that kind of stuff. And I, I think that it makes the horror genre that much more powerful. Agree, I agree, and I really appreciate you sharing that. I know that. You know, Jerry, you in particular, you've been through a lot these past few weeks. And, you know, I just think it's really like brave how open you are about discussing it where a lot of people would just kind of internalize that. And I think that if that really helps you, I think that's a really wonderful thing that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So I think that covers our discussion on Friday the 13th, part five. I think we definitely went in some areas that were unexpected. Um, For part five? <laughs> yes. Um, Michael, if people want to see your work, like I, I think we were talking off air, like I've come to know your work through some of your earlier films you did with a filmmaker that's local to me here in New England, uh, Richard Griffin, um, through The Sins of Dracula and Flesh for Inferno, these really fun, low-budget kind of exploitation horror movies. But tell us overall, like some of the projects that you have worked on uh, and that you currently have in production right now. Yeah, I'm very grateful and and lucky that I've gotten to work on a number of different projects across a number of different uh, genres and and uh, I guess price points. Not that to me, m- money making a movie is irrelevant. It's the passion that you bring to it. And uh, I started in the world of indie uh, horror. Uh, the first feature that I, I worked on uh, was a collaborative effort with. Uh, New York filmmakers Alan Kelly and Bart Masternardi, and that was Tales of Poe, and it was an anthology of three modern-day tellings of Edgar Allan Poe stories. I wrote the third one, uh, which was an adaptation of a poem of his called Dreams, and uh, relevant to this podcast, uh, the segment that I wrote uh, featured Amy Steele and Adrian King from the Friday the 13th franchise as well as Caroline Williams from Texas Chainsaw 2 and some mm-hmm. other people. Uh, so that was kind of a really cool outing, uh, you know, right out of the gate because I grew up loving these movies and have these these women who I uh, adored in that film. Uh, and seeing the life that film has had has been very gratifying. As you mentioned, I worked with Richard Griffin, uh, who I, I love. He's a New England-based filmmaker uh, who just really has his his own style and and sensibilities that just I, I i love his movies you know he's made stuff like disco exorcist and i love the disco and, exorcist and none of that an atomic brain invasion he uh he has an affinity for that that drive-in exploitation style that i think we so sorely lack in this world today mm-hmm. and i'm glad that he still does it and uh i am so grateful we did uh, two features that I wrote uh, together, as well as a few shorts, uh, the one of which that you mentioned, The Sins of Dracula, was sort of our homage to Christian scare films and the mm-hmm. idea of what if what if Hammer had made one, and it's all about Dracula taking over community theater. Uh, and Flesh for the Inferno is a demon nun movie. Uh, I, I am love and I'm so honored that I got to make those. Uh, I always am very thrilled that people uh, have seen them. And, you know, when people bring them up, I, I love it. Uh, I do a lot of TV movies these days. I've written movies for Hallmark, Lifetime, Ion. Uh, I have written a handful of Christmas movies, like a Christmas reunion starring Denise Richards and Patrick Muldoon. Uh, I have a new movie coming out this July, which is a, a killer uh 
stepmom movie called The Wrong Stepmother that was produced by Vivica Fox. Uh, she's in it as well as Corinne Nemec from Parker Lewis Can't Lose for you 80s and 90s kids. Yeah, oh, the show was so good. Uh, the Coob. Yeah. And I've got uh, I've gotten a killer babysitter movie coming out later this year. And then I myself, as a writer and director, have done a, a few projects. Uh, I wrote a movie a short last year called He Drinks, which was kind of a, a queer relationship comedy that premiered at Outfest and did the festival circuit. Uh, and I have written and directed a new uh, thriller that's coming out this year called The Office Is Mine, which is all about um, office territorialism. Uh, and what happens when you take that to to a deadly mm-hmm. degree. And mm-hmm. I also just recently contributed a segment to Death December, which is an international holiday horror anthology where they asked 24 filmmakers from around the world to craft tales of holiday horror. And my segment is called All Sales Fatal, about a woman and the issues she has at a gift exchange counter. It stars uh, horror fave Tiffany Shepis. Um and also features a cameo by uh, creator of Final Destination, Jeffrey Reddick. So I'm very I, thrilled for that. I'm so excited for the anthology. Uh, for, for our listeners, really quick, uh, one of the segments stars uh, the guest for our next episode for Jason Liz, uh, A.J. Bowen. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really stoked for that one. Oh, yeah, I've seen uh, I've seen the segment that A.J.'s in. It's called Milk and Cookies. It was directed by Sam Weinman. Mm-hmm. Uh it's a lot of fun. I think that, you know, luckily, uh, those of us uh, who are L.A.-based – uh, we all kind of tried to help each other out on our segment. So we've all seen uh, any of the L.A.-based filmmakers. I've seen what, what they've done. And if those five uh, shorts are any indicator of what the overall film is going to be, I think people are really in for uh, a wild ride. This looks mm-hmm. like a lot of fun. And it looks like looking at the um, director's list for that movie, there's like Lucky McKee, uh, Pollyanna McIntosh, and along with a number of up-and-coming directors like Amalie is rist- uh, listed in there as well. Like there's looks like there's a number of like really talented kind of like veterans. Yeah, and Zach, Zach and uh, – Zach and BJ Zach are in there. Yeah, BJ Colangelo. So, I'm really excited for theirs. So I also uh, I scored BJ's next short that's oh, coming cool. out pretty soon. So yeah, that whole anthology has, has so many good directors in it. And let's talk about your podcast. People want to hear more of you, Michael, and hear more of you talk about horror. Let's talk about Dead for Filth right now and what um, and what the premise of that is and some of the guests you've had on for there. Sure. Uh, Dead for Filth is a podcast I've been doing for almost two years now. Uh, it, As I say at the top of every show, it is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. Uh, it was born out of my interest in the fact that there seems to be a lot of crossover uh, with the queer community and an interest in the horror genre. And uh, for a long time, I had been writing about the topic and I had contributed to different uh, books and sites about it. And it led to me kind of having an annual gig hosting the San Diego Comic-Con International Mm -hmm. Queer Horror Panel. And over the time of hosting that panel, I would have a lot of different guests, including like Brian Fuller, who uh, was the showrunner of Hannibal, Mm -hmm. or, you know, Jeffrey Reddick, creator of Final Destination. Gwen Turner, who wrote the uh, screenplay for American Psycho, Mark Patton from Nightmare 2. And what was really great is we would really start touching into these social commentary discussions that felt very important. And then the time would run out. You know, Mm -hmm. I had one hour a year with six or seven amazing Mm -hmm. guests. And when I was meeting with the the platform that ended up becoming the parent platform for uh, Dead for Filth, it's a streaming service called Reverie. 
they had asked me originally to maybe do a uh, a scripted series, and for whatever reason, I can't remember what it was, we couldn't figure it out at the time, but they were launching a podcast network, and they said, well, do you have an idea for a podcast? And I had said, yeah, I, I would really like to continue sort of this work that I'm already doing, talking to these creators in the space and preserving their history, because I know what that would have meant to me as as someone in the LGBTQ community who had no representation growing up in terms of like feeling like there was someone I could look to and understand what mm-hmm. why, why I was drawn to this. And, you know, so I wanted to go from the idea of having seven amazing guests for an hour a year to having one great guest an hour a week. And that's where Dead for Filth came from. And I'm very lucky that uh, the show has sort of taken off. Uh, just recently, I'm, I'm proud to say The Advocate named it one of the 12 LGBTQ podcasts you should be listening to. Wow. I've had I've had guests like uh, Veronica Cartwright, who was in The Birds and Alien mm-hmm. and Witches of Eastwick. Uh I've had Darren Stein, writer and director of Jawbreaker. Uh, I'm trying to think. Jan Gonzalez, who recently directed Knife Plus Heart, which is a, you know a, a very big recently discussed mm-hmm. film. Um, Ray Santiago from Ash vs. Evil Dead is the guest this week. Uh, it, it's just been really cool. Peaches Christ, you know, like so. I've I'll, I always say I'll, I, I will have writers, directors, actors, drag queens, punk rockers, and anyone in between who. Uh, is creating in the world of queer horror and their allies. And that's, uh, I'm very lucky to um, facilitate these conversations. And I, I, I'm just grateful for the so, guests who come on and share their stories. So I'm always weary of asking of like what it means, like what does it mean for this community? Cause you're one member of the community, but could you speak to like as a queer male, what it means to see more representation in horror and in art right now? Like, what does that mean? How does, what does that mean to you? Cause like you said, like we didn't necessarily have that, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. What does it mean to you now to see greater representation in storytelling, particularly in genre storytelling? Um, well, it's so important. I, I think I, I can never stress how important it is because when you are in a world where it doesn't feel like anything is made for you, to even see a shred of yourself represented on screen or a shred of the issues that you deal with on a day-to-day basis, or to a greater extent, seeing someone like you getting to tell your stories, that has impact. And I I will Mm -hmm. even remove that from the horror genre and take it into the world of of creating uh, creativity in general. It's why, you know, something like Patty Jenkins directing Wonder Woman had the cultural impact that it did, Mm -hmm. is the idea that for so many years, there were all of these male-driven superhero movies, and they were also men behind the camera. So here's a movie that's like about a woman, made by a woman, and what does that mean for little girls who have always wanted a superhero movie to call their own, or little girls who want to be filmmakers and make superhero movies of their own? And it's it's it means a lot when you don't see yourself represented to suddenly see yourself. And that's really kind of the work that I want to preserve and the history I want to preserve because there are so many people who have waited for so long just to see their stories. And the sad fact is there are people who are still waiting and it is both our jobs as creators 
and advocates for creators to always raise the voices of people whose work we appreciate, but also do our best to help raise the voices of people who are just trying to tell their story and get out of the way once they do. And I think that, um, yeah, I, I, I always tell, because I've mentioned USA Up All Night a couple times, uh, but there was an airing in 1992 of a movie uh, called Vegas in Space, which was a movie that Troma uh, distributed. And I'm not going to say that it was the greatest movie, but Vegas in Space is a sci-fi adventure movie, and the cast is entirely San Francisco drag queens from the late 80s. Now, in the post-RuPaul era where there are drag queens on TV and the cover of magazines and commercials, it seems like this should not be impactful for the queer community. But in 1992, when I'm sitting at home, barely understanding what my life is, let alone understanding that there's this whole other world out there, the idea of drag queens on TV seems so unbelievably alien and punk rock because I just never thought I would see that. Right. And and so fast forward to now, where not only is there a weekly show where drag queens compete for attention and money, they've won Emmys for it. Like, And if you talk to any of the people, like Peaches Christ is a drag queen in the world of horror who's also a very dear friend of mine. We've had the conversation where... 10 years ago, when we were hanging out and she was doing shows and I was on the road with her, I would have never conceptualized that they would have a convention at the Los Angeles Convention Center and moms and their daughters would come to meet their favorite drag queens because we were always told, like, no one wants to see that. Or and it was it's the same thing, like drag drag is a radical extension of, of what we're talking about. But that's usually been the public's reaction to to queer content in general. And for so long, we fought so hard just to see anything. To The long way around answer to the question you asked is to see any representation, to see a movie like Knife Plus Heart come out of Cannes, and it's all, it's a queer giallo movie. That's amazing. Like, that's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Michael, and you're welcome to come back on any time. We really appreciate having you on here tonight. Um, thanks for giving your time. Like, I did not expect to go two hours. Tonight well, to it was about. really my pleasure. I, like I said, I love talking about these movies. I love talking about the social issues behind these movies because I think it was Jerry who said earlier, these movies do have a heart and they are important mm-hmm. and they're very healing. And I think to the world outside, sometimes it, it does just sort of look like the sleaze that we kind of joked about before, but for people who have felt like an outsider or who are dealing with trauma or dealing with loss, sometimes we have to invest into the fantastic to get the catharsis that we need because Mm -hmm. these movies are cathartic. You know, they are horror movies, but it's the fear, the fear in the screen is something we can wrap our minds around and then walk away from. And for a moment, it makes us forget about the fear of our lives, which is an ongoing existential crisis. And that's not for nothing. I think that's so important. And so to spend two hours talking about a movie that I bet the world at large would not think has that kind of mm-hmm. impact to some people, that's worth it to me. Beautiful. Well, thank you again, Michael. Jerry, do you want to let everyone know what we have coming up next week? Yes, I do. So, well, that was like a boost of energy. Sorry. Uh, it's just this 100-degree uh, weather. Uh, yeah, next week we have Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, one of my favorite movies of all time. And we're talking about it with someone who lists it as his favorite movie of all time. Like, I don't think it's his favorite horror movie. I think it's his favorite movie. 
and that's AJ Bowen from The Signal, You're Next, uh, I Tracked the Devil from this year, which was so good. Uh, we're really excited about that. And we also have a contest. I think there's four, maybe five days. Actually, by the time this airs, it'll probably be over. But, you know, maybe I'll extend it a week if it's not. Sure. Uh, I have a Jason Lives LaserDisc, really good quality. I'm not using it. So if you guys like the show, share the show, review it, uh, you know, retweet it, whatever. If we get to 500 followers on the Twitter page in the next uh, week after the show's aired, I'll extend it. Then I'm going to so send got, it to a random follower. We got just over 300 followers to go for that. And for a, a show we've been out for about a month now, I can live with that. Um, you know, I think we I, – I, I say this every week and I really mean it. We have such an awesome community of listeners. Like they mean just like the commentary we get on Twitter each day and the back and forth we get um, really means a lot. Um, we just got another review today, like a nice review here on iTunes. And I'm really – so please, I cannot encourage our, anyone who's listening enough. If you like what you hear, you know, wherever you get your podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever, if you can take two minutes and leave us a rating. Uh, and a quick little review that goes a long way to helping people find us um, we interact with pretty much anyone who leaves us a comment on Twitter uh, we are at pod and pendulum and I'm usually on there um, you know going back and forth Jerry also as well will go back and forth with anyone who makes uh, any comment good or bad um, and we try to keep it very positive on there um, because you know one of the things I like to do is like talk about other shows we're listening to at the moment too because I just think that like I think this world will be a much better place if instead of like trying to trash things all the time which there's a place for it we discuss the things we love and kind of built up that community a little bit more and that is my hippy dippy bullshit for the night but I really do <laughs> believe that so once again everybody thank you so much for listening we'll be back next week with part six um and we get some other special things we are planning uh for the future as well so till next week have a great one This isn't funny. Now you're gonna get it, bitch.